0: Hello and welcome to Tectonic, a podcast that looks at the way technology is changing our lives. I'm Richard Waters, West Coast editor at the Financial Times in San Francisco. Last week, we heard from Francesca Bria, a digital innovation expert. She talked about her work in helping European citizens reclaim digital sovereignty This week, we hear from a researcher focused on the effects of data-dependent technologies, like that of Facebook and Twitter, on society and culture.
1: If you are interested in destabilizing a population's confidence in institutions and information intermediaries, you gaslight them. You get them so that they can't tell what is reality.
0: That's the voice of Dana Boyd. She's a principal researcher at Microsoft, visiting professor at New York University, and founder and president of the Data and Society Research Institute. She spoke to the FT's Hannah Kushler in New York.
2: So thank you so much for joining me, Dana. First of all, I, I thought this was fascinating. Data and Society held a workshop called Who Controls the Public Sphere in the Era of Algorithms in February 2016? And one of the questions in the blurb appeared pretty prescient. You said, can Facebook determine the outcome of the US election? So what made you worry about what we're worrying about now all the way back then?
1: The funny thing about studying people's use of technology is you get to watch how people try to manipulate it uh, for all sorts of purposes. And... You know, for me, a lot of these threads go way back. They go back to the earliest days in which I was studying social media. And I spent the better part of the 2000s looking at how people were trying to alter algorithms for economic gain, political ideals, or just plain entertainment. Um, so fast forward to the point of 2016, we were very interested not just in what the companies could possibly do, where we felt like there was a lot more boundary set in motion for them, but what people could do to the company's architectures. In some ways, I don't think this should be surprising, although I fully admit that it has become surprising. Search engine optimization is at the beginning of search engines. Political campaigns have built social media efforts early on, and some of those are extraordinarily manipulative. I think what's different now is that people are waking up and recognizing that decentralized networks who are not part of the current political establishment can coordinate through network technologies to play a role that historically only really powerful actors once were able to play.
2: Yeah. And I think when they're waking up, they're not really sure what we can do about it. Do you have any ideas?
1: Looking at what's going on, I think it's important to go back to the roots and ask why. Why is it happening? Who's participating under what conditions? And you know, what are those root factors? And the reason I say this is that most of the discussions of what to do now are band-aid fixes, right? Moments where we're like, oh, somebody's made money over here running you know, misinformation you know, campaigns. Let's stop the money-making efforts. And while well, that's totally reasonable, I think the roots are really critical. Part is what is happening culturally in an American context. Now, I'll put it in American context first, but there's different parts around the world. In the United States, we've seen strategic efforts over a very long time to fragment the American polis, right? And that has occurred both at a very specific and localized level in that, you know, US military, which used to bring people together across geography, had actually plays not nearly the significant role that it once did. So that moment of getting to know people that were different has collapsed. Ever since the late 70s, when we went to 24-7 news media and we started to see monetization and, and in particular, financialization of our, our media ecosystem, we've increased the level of opinion-making in our media, and it's become polarized in its opinion-making. That's only been further magnified in the U.S. by the lack of local news, uh, which, of course, is connected to financialization and hedge fund takers, So you have all of these conditions where people are very ripe for a fragmented worldview. Now, layer onto that what happens in the U.S. in 2008, where, you know, due to an economic collapse, a lot of people throughout this country feel as though their identities are completely destabilized. They don't know what their future is. They're scared about economic conditions. And regardless of whether or not we actually saw a massive increase in inequality, we saw a massive increase in perceived inequality. And the result is that people felt more and more tribal. So, we've been already had the conditions to be polarized, and then you create a tribal dynamic on top of it. And then you go forward and you have a next generation. You have young people who are looking out to their future and seeing limited access to economic possibilities, huge debt to go to universities, you know, et cetera. And the result is, is that they're frustrated, insecure, and they're not sure what's going on. And so, that moment where they might be just playing with an effort to game Oprah Winfrey on her TV show suddenly turns into a moment where they can shape the political election. And for a lot of folks, there's something very fun about being part of these campaigns. And I think that's one of the things that people really miss in all of this. It's not that there's any one type of actor participating here. We're dealing with many different categories of people coordinating in a decentralized way, willing to share tactic even if they don't share goal. And that is so strange for anybody used to running a a political campaign or running an activist campaign where you understand what the goal is and you try to align people on tactics.
2: So you think that the, the way that we're talking about it at the moment, we're talking about Russian actors as if they are just a separate, discrete entity that is, you know, sitting in some kind of FSB building somewhere, interfering with elections, you think that we should see it as much more fluid and connected to other issues and maybe not addressable solely by changes in technology?
1: I believe that there's a lot of different actors, including foreign state, and foreign non-state actors. Even when we're talking about who are the Russians, we're quickly going to the Internet Research Agency, which is a well-known troll farm who is notorious for leaving tracks everywhere. They're not even trying to hide. That's why they're the easiest to identify. And they definitely have relationships with the, with the Russian state, but are they the Russian state? That's not so clear. And so what happens is when you have alignment there that may not actually even be the state where my guess is we're also seeing state actors and we're seeing other non-russian state actors but we're also seeing white supremacists and white nationalists and we're seeing hindu nationalists and we're seeing conspiracy theorists and we're seeing teenagers and we're seeing all sorts of different groups all throwing spaghetti at the wall trying to see what sticks what's notable about their is that they're trying to find vulnerabilities in our media landscape and that means both our social media landscape and our news media landscape so they're trying to find the moment where journalists will actually propel their views and scale them and amplify them by either you know repeating a message that they're trying to get out there or by negating it knowing full well that the boomerang effects in play which is that if you don't trust a news media outlet the news media outlet tells you something, you might think there's actually something true to what they're trying to negate. They're also looking for vulnerabilities in social media and their relationship to social media is different dependent on the platform. You know, With Twitter, it's actually mostly about trying to get to journalists, not trying to get to the mainstream public. And so some of the most you know common tactics I watch are these sock puppet accounts, these fake accounts, who tweet at journalists not to tell them to... Follow a link or do something, but asking questions. Asking journalists a question for which you know that the journalist is like, oh, is there something there? And starts Googling it, having found then the YouTube video and the blog post that was set up for the journalist to find. They're targeting an amplification agenda. Now, with Facebook, we're dealing with a different environment. That's all about trying to get information to spread. But what is the end goal, right? So one of the things I think that will come out as we watch the Internet Research Agency, the Russian affiliated corporation, you know, and their campaigns on Facebook, there's nothing common about the kinds of ads they put out there. They have ads that are pro and against pretty much every position you can imagine. What they have in common is a general sentiment that you should not trust the media and you should not trust the government of your own country. So the narrative that they're putting out there is not one to propel a specific belief, but to ask people to question everything. That's also a form of critical thinking. That's also a narrative that we encourage in our education system. And so we're seeing these coupling of frames happen at scale. And there's no doubt that, you know, internet technologies mirror and magnify the good, bad, and ugly of every part of the system. And that social media platforms are part of it, as are news media platforms. The question is how do we deal with it as a systemic issue rather than thinking that we can solve it by any one actor doing better or going away.
2: So do you think that the media needs to be better at rather than just throwing its hands up and saying, oh my God, there's so much misinformation out there, of actually trying to track misinformation and making sure that it doesn't amplify it?
1: I think it's imperative for the news media in particular to step back and recognize that they may be part of the ecosystem, they may be being gamed, and to figure out what stories they should not be amplifying. Consider this. It used to be common amongst journalists to not cover when people died by suicide. Why? Why did journalists not cover it? They didn't cover it because they were concerned that they would actually create you know, replication. We'd seen a ton of studies showing that the more journalists talked about suicide, the more people then went and tried it. So the worst thing you could do when you were covering the death of a celebrity, which was in itself a newsworthy story, was to highlight that they had died by suicide. We've actually undone that strategic silence. We have seen that manipulation occur in a variety of domains. Islamicist conversations, what do we cover in terms of beheadings or in terms of any ISIL or ISIS related content? It may be newsworthy, but how do we not use our platforms to radicalize? And I think that's really imperative for news media actors. For social media actors, I think a lot of it is trying to identify this new form of gaming. And in some ways I think of it as a security vulnerability. So we have historically understood security as an access issue. Um, Something like the Equifax breach where the issue is getting access to people's data or information. But there's a new form that has emerged because of these algorithmic systems, which is data injection uh, adversarial attacks. And so I think that just like companies had to start thinking about search engine optimization and who was trying to mess with their systems at scale, we also have to look at it in this light. And I think we have to get innovative. But I think the most important thing to realize is that we will never fix it. One of the reasons for taking on a security mindset is to realize that it's an iterative and evolving process. As long as we have people that are interested in bringing down institutions and information intermediaries... We're going to have these vulnerabilities. And so we need to get smart about how we evolve our understandings with it rather than thinking that we can find the silver bullet.
2: So if we're trying to learn from the security industry, do you think we should be doing things like having red teams, which is what the security industry does to have teams, which their whole purpose is to try and penetration test, see where they can get into the network. But instead, you know, this might not be finding the the loophole, but see how you can make use the network for
1: impact. I'm a big believer in red team, blue team efforts. The tech industry used to believe in the culture of test which is that you would do quality assurance assessments of a system before it went out there. One of the things that social media changed back in the early days of Friendster was to let the public actually do the test for us, um, to roll out a new feature and find the bugs because of something that were broke when it was live on platform. I think that that is now you know costing us tremendously. My colleague Matt Gertson talks about the need for white hat trolls, uh, which is what does it mean to actually ask people to mess with a system in that red team sense to really see how to build it out? Certainly, you need that kind of adversarial thinking whenever you're trying to build a system. Because one of the challenges, you know and the beauties of building these technologies, is that people design for the ideal end goal. They design for what could be, not for all of the ways in which it could be, you know, abused and misused. And I think that's one of the reasons why a lot of tech actors are, you know, completely flabbergasted by what's going on right now because they so desperately want the technology to be doing the good work that they designed it for. And that is being, you know, the technologies are being used for. But that also means that along with that good, we're also seeing some deeply destructive practices.
2: How much do you think is is structural? I mean, there's also been a lot of talk in the last year or so about attention and how things will spread through Facebook faster if people are liking them and people are looking at them. And so, therefore, that really plays into the hands of Anyone trying to disrupt the system. Facebook isn't going to change its newsfeed and make it like, you know, a curated newspaper, which has nothing to do with how much we pay attention to stuff. They seem to have a very good motive to keep people on site for as much time as possible.
1: I would argue that all of the media right now has an incentive to try to get people to click and consume as much as possible news media as well as social media. That is the cost of financialization. That is the cost of needing to you know, return on investment every quarter and make more money and more profit each time. I think that it's been an existential crisis for news media because they've tried historically to hold on to two imperatives. One of a faith-based belief in you know, producing content for the public to create an informed citizenry, and an economic imperative that has affected and, and shaped their industry writ large. Social media undoubtedly grew up purely in an ecosystem where profit was already part of the story. And so even though most tech founders started with an ideal of community, an ideal of connecting people around the world, they have to come to that question of financial motive really fast. The challenge with an advertising-based model, whether we're talking news media or social media, is that it is all about eyeballs. It is all about attention. And that attention is it can be very, very costly because what is most motivating for people are often the things that are least psychologically beneficial for them individually and least socially beneficial. So you know, if it bleeds, it leads, um, and the same thing operates within social media. We see this content that makes you you know emotionally responsive, and indeed, one of the biggest challenges for polarized content is that people hate post. They throw content into Facebook to express their their anger and their frustration about what some other might believe. And as a result, they help propel content that is extraordinarily costly. And I think that's where the amplification mechanisms on social media are not just the platforms themselves, but the way in which the public as a whole becomes a part and parcel of that amplification channel. Um, Which is also one of the reasons why we have reached an emotional exhaustion Uh, with consuming a lot of news content at this moment because it's just overwhelming. And that's one of these broader geopolitical environments because, again, you can manipulate that. You know, if you are interested in destabilizing a population's confidence in institutions and information intermediaries, you gaslight them. You get them so that they can't tell what is reality. And one of the best ways to do that is to overwhelm them. And in an ecosystem that is written, you know, driven by attention and driven by eyeballs on site, of course, that's very easy to do. So I think it's exactly accurate that this is a lot about attention and attention is connected to financialization.
2: And do you sense any kind of backlash brewing against the amount of attention that we give to social media?
1: So... There are certainly individuals who are sick of it and and opting out or trying to go to environments that are filled with kittens and and babies. There's also simultaneously a lot of very public, you know, critique of you know social media in particular, calls for regulation, calls for companies being pressured into doing you know different changes to their product, and you know that is all coming from this very heady moment where people can't tell which way is up. But the broader challenge, I'd say, is that when people are in a state of true emotional exhaustion and they're calling for change, they're not going to find solutions to the structural problems. They're going to be looking for the Band-Aids for the moment. And I think we're going to build a lot of Band-Aids for the moment right now. I don't think that there's any way not to because it's it's politically necessary for, for government, for industry actors, for a whole variety of civil society groups. But I, I'm just hoping that we can use this point of exhaustion and pe- point of frustration and and people wanting to be out of this situation to propel into a broader and more systemic change around how our media infrastructure operates and how we band together as a society. And that's that's a longer-term project and one that I, I don't know that we've even begun.
2: Yeah, people briefly quitting Facebook after the election isn't going to change that. The other thing that there seems to be a lot of attention on, you know, something that we've known we're moving the direction of huge amounts of data being sucked up about us for a long time. But I think the recent developments in the advancing of machine learning has made people more concerned that the amount of data that's being collected about them might be used for things that they don't really understand at all. I mean, do you think this is a kind of exciting moment or a worrying moment in terms of data?
1: I think it's, you know, let's talk about the positive first. We are the precipice of a whole set of advances in medicine that are only made possible by sharing tremendous amount of data so that we can understand things like the growth of cancer. The possibilities and potential of precision medicine are phenomenal. And we want to remedy the potential harms, especially in a country that connects medicine so deeply to an insurance profit motive. But we want to make certain that we can develop innovative remedies for people who are suffering from from terrible diseases. And so I'm extraordinarily excited about the amount of data that we need to ingest and build, the advancement in machine learning um, and neural networks technologies in order to get there. That's phenomenal. On the flip side, we're using these same types of technologies and the same obsession for data to amplify practices that have had long and historic problems. Think about what we're doing in the criminal justice ecosystem. Criminal justice has been a disturbing and and fraught uh, sector from the beginnings of this country, all right? And not to mention the degree to which it is extraordinarily racist and destructive. We have more people incarcerated in the United States now than we had enslaved during the height of slavery. Like it's a terrible situation. So when we introduce technology and amplification mechanisms into that space and we try to train systems based on historic paths, all we're doing is amplifying historic prejudice and historic racism. And so that's an environment where I don't think we know what we're doing and I don't think we're being responsible in how we're doing it. And there is indeed a profit motive uh, that's driving it and an obsession for efficiency and, and lowering of costs without actually questioning whether or not this is healthy. Then of course, we go back to the news information and the social media context. You know, On one hand, people want content that connects them to their world. And you know, ask anybody what they love of social media and it's about the ability to connect. It's about having information at your fingertips and the ability to connect to the people you love across distance. And that is made possible by the sharing of data because you're sharing it with people to connect. But that same data can be used to engage in different kinds of surveillance practices for economic incentives advertising and of course for other political incentives and so that's one of the things that's so tricky because it's not really about individual data in any of those three cases it's about how your data relates to other data within the system it's about the ability to understand prediction and when we're engaged in any act of prediction we are basing our information on the connective tissue of the rest of society. And the question is whether or not we're doing it for end goals that we believe are productive or ones that we believe are destructive. And one of the biggest challenges is that not everybody agrees on what those end goals should look like.
2: And, and do you think we'll see, you know, we talk a lot about personalization. Do you think that we'll see filter bubbles coming out of the realm of, of Facebook and, and coming into all sorts of realms? I mean, for example, there's been some interesting stories written about personalized pricing on Amazon. Do you think we end up you know, in this situation where we actually have constructed different realities for everyone?
1: Humans self-segregate because it's comfortable. We find people that are like ourselves. And you know, lots of sociological and psychological literature has shown time and time again that given any form of choice, we go to a world in which we have as homogenous of a uh, surroundings as possible. And the challenge is that what Facebook has been designed to do is to amplify your desires. And if your desires are to live in a filter bubble, it will do that work for you it will amplify them. And that's one of the reasons why these systems are so costly, these personalization systems that are indeed going from Facebook to every other environment, because you want to be in your own comfortable environment. You want to be in your gated community, online, offline, and everywhere else. The question is, what does it take to rebuild a society in which we are able to work across distance? So I you know, refer to the idea of the military, and the military is a really important part of an American social infrastructure. Because the U.S. military, the standing army, has always been based on the idea that people from around this country who are fundamentally different had to be socialized into a unit, across difference, to stand by each other enough to die for each other and to die for this country. That is an important commitment. There is nothing at that scale. We're not going to ask everybody to do that. And indeed, as we lose structures like the military, we lose the processes of being so utterly uncomfortable. How do we commit voluntarily to being uncomfortable again in order to meaningfully connect? That's going to be the solution to personalization, the counter to personalization. But as long as there is an economic imperative to giving people what they want, we will see personalization produce filter bubble after filter bubble. I'm
2: going to slightly change tack now. One of the other issues that the tech industry has been dealing with a lot in the last year or so, uh, or at least has become public in the last year or so, has been conversations about people speaking out about sexual harassment from VCs and other tech leaders and senior men in tech. And you wrote quite movingly about your own experience with inappropriate propositions from tech entrepreneur Mark Cantor. And I would just wanted to you know, look broadly at where we are in the industry on this. I mean, do you think that after all this publicity harassment is going to decline?
1: No, I actually think it's going to get worse. And that's what I struggle with the most. So sexual harassment and more insidious forms of sexual abuse inevitably come from a differential in power, an abuse of power. And that abuse of power is further magnified when people don't believe themselves to have power, and yet they do. One of the biggest challenges amongst the tech industry is that Many of the people who are part of it see themselves as geeks, as outsiders, as social misfits. They don't see themselves as being powerful. That's part of why we're having such a confused conversation about the role of social media. Facebook doesn't see itself as being one of the most powerful companies in the world. And so what happens is that whenever you have power and you don't know it, the likelihood of abusing that power only increases. So. Let's look at what tech dealt with in terms of historically around that power. So geek culture often allowed for a form of shared identity for people who felt socially ostracized in other parts of society. Nowhere was that more notable than geek forms of masculinity. The idea that you could you weren't necessarily one of those alpha men who you know, were making it big in a financial sector, but you had pride in what it meant to be a guy in tech. And that normalized a certain form of masculinity that we saw, you know, grow at scale. And then tech all of a sudden became the most powerful sector in American society, but it didn't necessarily go with the cultural ethos. So we may make movies about geeks and celebrate them in ways that look very different than, you know, real genius back in the day. But for most tech folks, this is their safe haven of their people like them. And now we're asking hard questions about who gets to be a part of tech because tech has so much power. We're asking why are there not more women in tech? We're asking why are there not more people of color in tech? And those are very important questions to be asking. But for a lot of people whose identity is wrapped up in what it means to be in tech, they're basically feeling as though they're being under attack for not being acceptable enough. The same attack vectors that actually made culture emerge the way that it did. And unfortunately, what that has meant is that not just at the highest levels of tech, but the whole way through tech, we are seeing increased kinds of misogyny, increased kinds of sexism. And all it takes is a little moment when, you know, a mid-level engineering manager has been told and incentivized that they need to be more diverse in their hiring practices. And they have an interview candidate that they don't believe is as qualified as a male candidate, and they're pressured by their boss to hire that woman. And that is a radicalization moment. That is a moment in which anger and resentment and misogyny start to brew. And so one of the challenges for me is how do we get through this? Because our current incentive structures aren't working. Our shame structures may push out individuals, but they don't address the broader systemic issue. And I think it's going to take a lot of hard work to do that. But the most important work is going to be in getting buy-in writ large from people to realize that we have to collectively rethink what the culture of this industry is. And that's going to be hard for a lot of people who are deeply wedded to the current culture.
2: Yeah, there's so much hard work to do. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: We'll be back next week with another episode of Tectonic. In the meantime, if you'd like to comment on today's show or suggest any topics you'd like us to cover in future episodes, please email us at tectonic@ft.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast app, and if you write a review, that will help other people find us too. Thanks for listening.